Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Tracy Fry and Stacy Christensen from the American Medical Association. We've invited them to join us to discuss their journals, updated guidance on the reporting of race and ethnicity in medical and science journals, as part of our work to tackle broader topics within medicine, such as race and social justice. Welcome, Tracy and Stacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Tracy, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. I am Tracy Fry, and I am the Deputy Managing Editor at the JAMA Network. Thank you. And Stacy, could you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Stacy Christensen. I'm the Managing Editor of JAMA and the Chair of the AMA Manual of Style, um, of which Tracy is also a part. Thank you so much. So since this is a little different than our average episode, can you just tell us a little bit about the AMA Style Manual and how this editorial we're talking about today came about? Um, sure. This is Stacy. Um, so the AMA Manual of Style was actually born in 1962. Um, it was a tiny little manual just to help inform people who work on uh, JAMA and um, the related network journals apply style and um, formatting and um, consistency in, in how we um, edit papers that are submitted. Um, so in 1962, it was 68 pages long, and over the years it has grown, it is now 1,200 pages, and we are on our 11th edition. Um, so it's sort of what we consider our, our go-to source for um, style, policy, formatting in JAMA and the JAMA Network journals, but a lot of other places um, use the manual as well. Um, industry, other journals, um, freelancers, publishing houses, etc., and um, we approach everything from punctuation to spelling to uh, typography, as well as important legal and ethical issues that come up in biomedical communications. Thank you. So what spurred this specific update to the guidelines? After the style book was released, we started taking a hard look at our inclusive language section, as did other similar resources, such as the AP style book and the APA publication manual. The first thing we did was update rules for capitalization of racial terms. We received a number of queries about the presentation of racial and ethnic terms in the AMA Manual of Style, in particular, the manual style preference for using lowercase for the term black. The 11th edition originally recommended capitalizing racial and ethnic terms that derive from geographic nouns such as Asian, Alaska Native, and Latina. The terms black and white were lowercased as racial designators because they were not derived from proper nouns. However, increasing sensitivity and awareness of the importance of the presentation of racial and ethnic terms spurred us to reconsider this style recommendation. The Manuals Committee met several times, conducted research, and sought input on this issue from multiple sources. The committee concluded that we will now capitalize both black and white, which aligns with the capitalization preference applied to other racial and ethnic categories. We acknowledge that there may be instances in which a particular context may merit exception to this guidance, for example, in cases in which capitalization could be perceived as inflammatory or otherwise inappropriate. We then started a comprehensive update of the reporting guidance for race and ethnicity, with review from many stakeholders in academia, research, publishing, government, and individuals with expertise in diversity, inclusion, and equity. This update was first released in draft form as an editorial in JAMA in early 2021, with a call for wider review and feedback, and then we updated it again and released the current guidance in August 2021. Thank you. Has JAMA experienced any operational 
challenges since implementation of these new guidances? Anytime we change uh, style or policy, whether it's how we talk about genes or how we talk about a disease or um, any anything, um, it's always important to make sure that we get the word out and it's uh, as consistent and accurate as possible. Um, so w- that's why we published the editorial in JAMA, so we could make sure that we were um, being as inclusive as possible. Um, so editors, researchers, authors, other publishers knew what we were working on and knew what the new guidance was, and they could um, sort through it and apply it um, as they saw fit. For us, um, because it's in the AMA manual, we follow it very, very closely. Um, so we updated the manual online. Uh, as I said, it's a 1,200-page print book, and um, every time there's a new printing, we can include new information. But um, we're between printings right now. So we were able to update the manual online. It's the full content um, is, is available. And we've also put all the guidance in the instructions for authors for all 13 of our journals. Um, after it was published, we also did a lot of social media um, outreach. We have a blog that we published um, uh, people with the, the links so they could get to the content um, freely. It's We make sure that the content is available for free. Not the whole manual, mind you, but the guidance is available for free, which we felt was really, really important. And we've given a lot of talks. We've gone to um, different organizations, to meetings, to conferences, um, just to kind of get the, the word out there. And also, it's really been helpful to get feedback. So people will say, well, how about this or how about that? And we'll say, oh, that, that's a great question. Let us you know, write it down and take it back to the committee. And that way, um, we're letting people know the guidance is not final. This isn't any kind of final word. This is what everybody should do. Um, quite the opposite, because we're able to update the style book um, regularly, we're able to keep up so we can keep it um, consistent and relevant and as accurate as possible. Um, so we phased in the new guidance as we were working on you know, current content in the journal. And we just made sure that everybody from editors to proofreaders and authors had access to it. So we were able to make changes in, in real time. Yeah, which is important because none of this guidance is final. Um, We know that it's evolving and we need to be making changes as societal norms change. I think that's a really good point that even though it's a 1200 page book, that it's still growing, changing, evolving. So and yeah, an online version makes that way easier than reprinting every time. Discussion of race and ethnicity, especially in those involved in structural inequities, are highly contested spaces in the American public discourse. Has the journal seen any pushback about the guidance from authors, editors, reviewers, public? Um, Actually, our editors and reviewers across all 13 of the journals have been really supportive of our guidance, um, and authors have also responded positively. Uh, Any of the pushback we've received has been uh, pretty minor, and it's quickly resolved by communicating with authors about their concerns and explaining why we're asking for more specific, sensitive, and accurate terms. Terms and categories used to define and describe race and ethnicity have changed with time based on sociocultural shifts and greater awareness of the role of racism in society, and it's important to be able to provide the rationale for our recommendations. Uh, We've also learned from our interactions with authors and reviewers who may have lived experiences that they are willing to share so we can ensure our guidance is as comprehensive as possible. Um, And this is also possible by making extensive use of peer review. When we crafted the draft guidance, we actually published a call for reviewers in JAMA and received dozens and dozens of responses from people willing to review and provide resources to help our endeavor. 
Uh, so we feel like we really heard from a lot of voices. Um, and so it's not just coming from, you know, the few people who are on the style manual committee. We had a really wide response. Um, and I think that helped uh, publish guidance that, you know, people aren't really that upset about, <laughs> that they are supportive of and they're responding positively to. Can you give us a few examples of changes that were made? So you mentioned the capitalization of racial groups. What other changes were made with this guidance? And you don't have to go into all of them. I know it's pretty extensive, but just give our listeners a, a hint of some things that were changed. So there's some big things and there's some small things. Um, one of the things um, that's new that we haven't done for anything else is we actually recommend putting categories, uh, sociodemographic categories in alphabetical order instead of an order by prevalence. So that way it is really consistent um, between everything that we publish and it's, um, you know, it, it's a little more fair. Um, so uh, say you have categories of Hispanic, black and white, and that's how it was submitted. We would actually move that around to be black, Hispanic and white. So alphabetical order is a, is a new um, and it, like I said, it's a, a, not a huge change. Um, and we haven't had anybody complain about, about doing that. So um, that was a small one. One of the bigger things is just making sure that it's being reported at all, um, right? So when we're editing a paper, we make sure if it's relevant that race and ethnicity categories were reported, but we also want to know how that data, how the data were collected. Did, did they ask the study participants themselves? Um, what categories are you going to, um, you know, put yourself in? Um, or is this a sort of a record review where it's just from the electronic health record and authors are just gathering the data that way? Um, and what categories were offered to people, you know, so when you, when you go to your physician's office and you fill out your forms, sometimes there's check boxes, um, and sometimes it's fill in the blank. So we ask authors to tell us how, um, the data were, were collected. Um, and we always make sure that it's reported. So we have, um, recommendations to report. Um, race and ethnicity in the abstract, as well as making sure it's clear how everything was collected in the methods, and then also it's reported in the results. So the thoroughness and the consistency and the transparency um, are a huge part of the guidance, making sure that things are being collected, reported, um, you know, and it's clear to the reader how all of this was done, and also why why was this done? So that's a big part of the guidance, um, in addition to some of the smaller things. Tracy, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that. Um, yeah, I was thinking of some of the ones that, some of the terms that we have recommended to avoid um, that were more of a challenge would be things like people, people of color and brown, um, which are embraced among some racial and ethnic minority communities. And so I think it was a surprise to people that when we recommended not to use them, um, and then we explained why, which was that, the, you know, the term people of color was introduced to mean all racial and ethnic groups that are not considered white or of European ancestry. And it's also as an indication of um, anti-racist, multiracial solidarity. Um, but then we found out during our research that there was concern that the term may be too inclusive um, and too broad to the point that it's erasing differences among specific groups. And so that's why we recommend... Um, a preference to, to name the specific racial or ethnic categories that are included or intended to be addressed. Um, and we provided some collective terms that people can use, such as racial and ethnic minority groups or uh, minoritized individuals. 
underserved populations, and we provide definitions of what that that means. Um, but we were just trying to encourage people to be a little bit more specific about the populations they were talking about instead of relying on some of the, the very general terms that people use colloquially. I think those are really great examples. And I love that you not only make people say detail, but how they got the detail. Is this self identification or just I looked at a picture or what it was, you know, stuck in the EMR by somebody at the front desk. I think that's a really great way to to focus on that. How do you think the guidance has shaped the content of submissions since its implementation? So we've seen um, some real good progress in reporting uh, race and ethnicity. We actually conducted a study um, to, to see uh, how, we, how we were doing. Um, so by way of background, there was a study published um, in uh, JAMA Network Open, so that's our open access journal, um, of randomized clinical trials in JAMA, The Lancet, and the New England Journal of Medicine um, in 2015 and 2019. So it was almost 700 trials. And in that study, um, basically the investigators wanted to see um, the reporting practices for sociodemographic variables like race and ethnicity, sex, their socioeconomic status. And um, I guess not surprising, about 98% of the studies reported participant sex, but only half reported on race and ethnicity, and only 15% reported on socioeconomic status. So again, that was in 2015 through 2019. Um, so based on that study, we decided in kind of in tandem with our, our new guidance to see if publishing this and trying to you know, get the word out there would help improve the reporting of race and ethnicity as a variable in our research. Um, so we looked at studies in JAMA, JAMA Internal Medicine, and JAMA Pediatrics in the first couple months of 2019, which is before our guidance, and then again in 2022, earlier this year, which was after the guidance was published. And as a reminder, the, the guidance was published in August of 2021. Um, so a bunch of us sat down and we went through all of the research in these three journals from these time periods. And we filled out this big spreadsheet that looked at a whole number of things. Um, was race and ethnicity reported? Were other sociodemographic variables reported? Um, where was this information? How thorough was it? Um, if other, and I use, I'm using air quotes, if other was a category um, which was used in like the tables or the text, which we, we have seen, um, if that was included, if that was defined, and um, why race and ethnicity were included. So in this study, we looked at uh, about 250 research papers of human participants. And um, the reporting of race and ethnicity did improve from 2019 to 2022. Um, so before and after our guidance, it went from about 57% being uh, of papers reporting it to about 67%. So that was not statistically significant. And that may be because it's, you know, so close to the guidance. It, it may, need, may need more time. Um, Although we are working very hard at the JAMA Network, our editorial teams are trying to make sure that race and ethnicity are um, consistently and clearly reported. Um, as the other studies showed, there was not very much change in reporting socioeconomic status either. That went from about 37% to 44%. So that's an area we definitely are going to be focusing on. 
Um, as far as some of the very detailed results of our um, looking, um, about 27% of articles before the guidance defined the racial and ethnic categories that were used in the other, so uh, lumping people into other. But after the guidance, about 70% um, were able to clearly define who would be included in such a category. We actually prefer not to use catch-all terms like that. We prefer to be as specific as possible. Um, but we realize that sometimes the authors, based on what kind of data they have been able to collect, um, aren't able to um, delineate further. Um, but when they are, we ask that they please explain it in a table footnote or in the results. Um, so in presenting the race and ethnicity categories in alphabetical order, that was a new policy. Um, so before the, the guidance was published, only 8% of studies did that because we weren't recommending it. So 8% before the guidance, 93% after. <laughs> so that basically means um, once the guidance was published, uh, we were trying very hard to make sure we were applying it consistently. And that seemed to work. So we do hope that we can replicate this with other sections of the inclusive language uh, part of the style book, which include things like age, socioeconomic status, um, disabilities, and, dis and disorders. So this study was um, presented at the Peer Review Congress earlier this year, and we've actually submitted this to be published as a research report. So the long answer to your question is yes. <laughs> Um, we've definitely seen some progress and we're actually studying it to make sure, you know, that it's not, we're not just eyeballing it and saying, oh yeah, I think we're doing better. We want to be able to prove that we're doing better and we want to see where there might be areas where we can improve. How might a guidance such as this one with clear and complex directions for dealing with race and ethnicity obscure other identity categories that may be useful from a social constructs from which to understand health, such as geography, sexual or gender identity, health literacy, access to affordable health care, etc.? Uh, one of the goals of our guidance um, is to encourage the use of language to reduce unintentional bias in medical and science literature. Um, and so the reporting of race and ethnicity should not be considered in isolation and should be accompanied by reporting of other socio-demographic factors and social determinants, uh, including concerns about racism, disparities, and inequities, and the intersectionality of race and ethnicity with these other factors. Um, and so we're encouraging authors, um, when they're reporting the results of this kind of research that includes uh, racial and ethnic disparities and equities, uh, they should be providing a balanced and evidence-based discussion of the implications of the findings for addressing institutional racism and structural racism as these affect the study population, disease or disorder studied, and the relevant healthcare systems. And so, for example, we're asking that in the introduction and discussion sections of manuscripts that authors include implications of historical injustices when describing the differences observed by race and ethnicity. And uh, such discussion of these implications can use specific words such as racism, structural racism, racial equity or racial inequity, um, whatever is appropriate. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, uh, we've said we do not consider this guidance final and we will con continue to update it. Um, and we are also turning our attention to some of the other identity categories uh, such as geographic factors, age, sex and gender, abilities, disorders and diseases, socioeconomic status, it's so hard to say. Um, so our goal is to craft guidance to help all involved in scientific communication discuss study participants with accuracy, clarity, consistency, and sensitivity. Um, and so our goal really is to not uh, 
you know, obscure the other identity categories because we want authors to be focusing on everything they can. Thank you. What has the response been from journals outside of your network of 13 journals? Obviously, it got our attention here at Transfusion. Uh, What have you heard from other journals? I would say the response has been very positive. Um, We've gotten a lot of feedback from people who use the AMA manual or who have used our guidance, who've made changes to their own style. Um, And as I've mentioned earlier, we've presented information about our guidance to a large number of organizations, including medical writing and editing societies, um, groups of investigators and authors, other journals, um, even our own staff at the JAMA Network uh, for people not involved in the editorial process. And people have been really receptive and they appreciate having someplace to refer people. So um, like I said, it's in the instructions for authors. So there's a place that people can go and say, oh, well, you know, look here and here's some guidance um, to help. And we've made sure that it's freely available so people it's not behind a paywall and people can get to it and to use it. And we encourage people to use it and to cite it. Um, And we will continue to work on inclusive language topics with the same approach, which is um, widely um, extensive and public peer review to ensure that people in scientific communication can freely access the guidance. That's great. I love that it's free and readily available for everyone. How does the careful attention to language and intent evidence in these guidances help shape better research, more inclusive data, and ultimately better health outcomes for all people? Well, we're hoping that it helps to raise awareness among researchers about who they're studying and why and assess who they may have overlooked. Um, We're seeing authors mention as a limitation study groups that aren't very diverse and the need for future studies to be broader. Um, so we think that's a good thing, that they're they're aware of this, they're noticing um, that maybe some of the databases they're using or other sources um, aren't as broad as you know they should be. And so hopefully that will lead to including a wider variety of people of different genders, ages, and socioeconomic status um, who have a mixture of abilities and disabilities and who are from a range of racial and ethnic groups. Um, to be included in these studies, and that will provide more expansive results, which will lead to better health care for everyone. And y'all have alluded to this as we've been talking, but where does your group go next? What's on your horizon? So we plan to update the other sections of the style manual. Um, this is a chapter in uh, it's the, called the usage chapter. So out of all the chapters of the style book, um, there's one big healthy one. Tracy is uh, the author and the, the shepherd of this um, chapter. And um, so inclusive language is just part of it. And the next thing that we're working on will be the sex and gender and sexual orientation sections. Um, but we also plan to address age, socioeconomic status, diseases, disorders, abilities, and disabilities. So um, anything that might fall in a sociodemographic variable, anything that might need um, a real hard look at inclusive language. Um, And so uh, like I mentioned before, once that's finished, we'll take a similar approach where we let people know we have draft guidance and we would welcome and encourage as many people as possible to be able to review it and give us feedback. Um, we, we got a lot of really, really wonderful comments on the race and ethnicity chapter and they didn't all agree with each other, of course. So we, we fully expect that that will happen for each section. Um, but it gives us a lot of really great information to wade through and a lot of really important resources Um, including people, people resources, which um, have been really, really, really helpful. Um, You know, we have didn't feel um, 
any animosity or, or any, you know, um, negative pushback while we were revising the guidance. Um, people have been really eager to help because um, it's important, um, you know, to have something that's clear and consistent and public so everybody can use it. So um, we also tackle smaller things when they come up. So this guidance is, it takes months and months and months um, on top of our full-time jobs to, to um, write and revise and have the peer review and revise again. And so it's a, it's a slow process because it's such a heavy lift, but we do little things. So just a few weeks ago, we announced that we will follow the WHO guidance on the use of MPOX as a replacement for monkeypox. So we wrote a blog entry on that and we put an announcement on the AMA manual website that we're gonna change um, our approach and we're actually phasing it into the journals right away. The style book, of course, like I said, it, it'll have a bit of a lag because the print is between printings and the online version that you know obviously takes a bit of work to update as well. But so we put the information out there already that we're already doing this, and as soon as we can get it um, hard, you know, uh, actually put in the manual itself, we will um, have that done. So there's sometimes there's just little things that we need to address, but they're really important, and we need to be nimble and, and flexible um, as as we work. And that's our show. A big thank you to Stacy Christensen and Tracy Fry for a truly engaging conversation. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time. Mm -hmm.